Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and I'm a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. Each week, I interview some of the best minds on the planet on the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over. It's time to live. Do the right thing. Stand up for yourself. Don't worry about what the outside thinks of you because people were saying horrible things about me in the newspaper. I stood by what I did. I owned my actions. I stood up for myself. And I realized that you're never wrong if you're doing the right thing. I mean, obviously, when you take that Superman pose that cops always have, you're convincing everybody else that you're in charge. But I think more important, when you take that pose, you convince yourself you're in charge. We have been taught that greed is bad and that materialism is bad and wanting things is bad. So the first thing I have to deal with with people is to convince them that you're worthy of this. You deserve to have this. Okay, before we jump into this interview, I want to invite you to be considered for my 2019 Traveling Mastermind. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com and fill out the application and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a great fit. This year, we'll be in Boston doing lots of cool things like training with Tom Brady's trainer, Alex Guerrero. In the middle of the year, we'll be heading to Monaco doing things like vintage car rides through the French Riviera. And then we're going to wrap the year in Florence, Italy, doing things like truffle hunting and hot air ballooning over Florence. Look, Life is all about fulfillment, and I really try and walk the walk. So if you are looking to be part of our tribe of 28 high-achieving entrepreneurs that are in the six- and seven-figure range, fill out your application at workhardplayhardmastermind.com to be considered. So think of the mastermind as having two parts. The first is the trip itself. And the second part is what goes on over the four days within the mastermind. Our group of 28 entrepreneurs will help you brainstorm and accelerate what you want to achieve in 2019. And we'll do that through a variety of different exercises, brainstorming activities, breakout sessions, goal setting sessions, you know the drill. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a fit. All right, let's jump into today's episode. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. On today's episode, we have Frank Canace. This one I absolutely loved. Fascinating interview. You're going to love this interview. So Frank was a lawyer and a police officer, not consecutively, simultaneously. Can you imagine living the life of being a lawyer and a police officer? We had so many things in common. He wrote a book called How to Create the Perfect Life. He's got amazing stories. You're absolutely going to love this episode. I'm just going to have you jump right into the episode. Follow Frank C-A-N-A-C-E on Facebook. Get his book. Listen to this interview. You are going to love it. Frank, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You know, man, I am super pumped for this interview and I know it's going to be a good one. So thank you for taking the time. Thanks for having me. I think what we'll do is we'll talk about, uh, we'll break it up into three parts. First, we're going to talk a little bit about the science of achievements. And with you, I have a couple of directions I'd like to go in. 
Then we'll talk a little bit about fulfillment in life, which I know you're an expert in. And then we'll wrap it up with some rapid fire questions. Cool? Sounds fantastic. All right. So you are a jack of many trades. When you're at a cocktail party, would you tell people that you're an author, a retired police officer, an entrepreneur, a business coach? What would you do? I'm not really sure. I guess it depends on the cocktail party I'm at, the uh, audience that I'm talking to. Um, sometimes I, I talk about everything. People really want to hear the cop stories, though, and I try to steer them away from that. I never want my story to be a war story. You don't like telling the cop stories, or you just you don't you just you don't think that there's much value in kind of going over that, or was that? If there is value in it, I'll definitely talk about it. People tend to want to hear those stories, though, just for the the blood and guts of it. Yeah, um, a lot with my life coaching, I use the police stories to drive home a point. I think then it's productive just for the sake of sheer entertainment though. I, I rarely tell cop stories. You had such an interesting life because if I understand your path correctly, you were simultaneously working as an attorney and a police officer. If that's correct, why did you decide to do it that way? That is correct. Um, I was a lawyer graduated from law school. And while I was taking the bar exam, I was pursuing a career as an FBI agent. I was hired by the FBI. There was a two-year hiring freeze on in the federal government. And New Haven, Connecticut was hiring 12 police officers for two years. That fit into my time schedule very nicely. So I decided to apply for the New Haven job. I got the job. And after two years, I, I didn't want to leave. I developed a lot of great friendships with police officers. I really loved the job. I really did. It was an amazing job. 20 years, I learned more about myself than the rest of my life combined. It was, it was something that I thought was um, life-changing every single day for me to be able to help people at that level. And I was able to practice law during the day. So I would work at night as a cop and I had a law practice and I, I was a litigation attorney during the day. So it worked out very nicely for me and my family so that my wife could stay home with the kids. It just worked well all the way around. So that's why I chose that path. Do you know anybody else who's done that? Not to the extent that I have. I was a full-time attorney. I had a full caseload. Many times uh, in Connecticut, I had the, the largest caseload of any single attorney. So I don't know anybody that's done it to that extent. But for me, it was a labor of love. It, I never really thought of it as work. I thought of it as you know two things that I really enjoyed two things that fit very nicely together. I really enjoyed the subject matter. I loved the fact that my wife could stay home with the kids and, and spend a lot of time with them. It just, it really worked. And it was, it was really the impetus behind this career for me, this life coaching career, because I really felt like my life was perfect when I retired. I want to talk about the police officer side first. What are the misconceptions that most people have about being a police officer? Well, I, I think we see TV. So we see TV cops, police officers that are on 24-7. Um, they live, eat, breathe the job. It's really not the case. Um, it's an important job. We know it's an important job when we're doing it. But at the end of the day, they're just a bunch of guys and women who are trying to pay a mortgage, trying to send their kids to college, trying to send their kids to private school, trying to provide for nice things for their families. That's what drives a lot of police officers. It's a it's a very valuable job, and we know how important it is. But it is a job for us. 
Uh, it's something that we that we do to support our family in part. And I don't think people realize that. I think people think that police officers are just out to chase and tackle every day. Police officers are negotiators. Police officers are crisis managers. You know, that's the, the greatest thing I learned as a, as a cop that I wouldn't have learned anywhere else. And I use it every single day in my businesses. I'm a, I'm a trained crisis intervention person. I'm a crisis manager. When the world seems to be ending for everybody else, I'm able to calm everybody down because that's what I did for a living for 20 years. I met people when they were at their absolute worst, people who were you know, in turmoil, people who had lost a loved one, people who were victims of, of heinous crimes. And to talk people off of that ledge was difficult, but it could be done if you just talk to people. That's the that's the big thing I learned as a, as a cop was just to talk to people. You can say anything to somebody as long as you're saying it to them genuinely and personally. And I think that is the misconception with cops. People look at the gun belt, they look at the vest, they look at all of that stuff. It's not that. It's, it's not about that. It's about how you interact with people, how you are as a human being. Did you find, uh, I'm going to try and ask this question in the most delicate way as possible because I don't want to be insulting to any other police officer. But most police officers don't have the level of education, certainly post-college, postgraduate education, that you do. So was it strange, maybe is the word, being in that environment with guys who didn't have that level of education? And did you feel that there was, you know, that there was a sort of a chasm between the two? No, not at all. I did a lot of training with the police department. They, they sent me to school to train police officers. So I had that role also in the police department in addition to my normal patrol functions. So that bridged whatever gap there was educationally between me and the other police officers. But I found cops to be unbelievably quick on their feet, witty, unbelievable people. So the, the, the educational gap never really came into play so much because I just thought they were phenomenal people doing a phenomenal job. And I realized very, very early that I can learn from every single person I worked with and every single situation that I encountered. So I took it as a learning experience and I was also able to teach. So I, I got to see both sides of, of the coin as a cop. And I think that helped bridge that chasm. Where do you think you got your sort of approach to this from? Was it maybe one of your parents, you know, in, I don't know, just the ability to be able to do both of these professions? And we'll talk about being a lawyer in a second, but, you know, how much of, how much of an impact did your, did the way your parents raised you affect sort of the decision to do what you did career-wise? Yeah, I grew up very humbly. I grew up on a farm in New Jersey, farmlands of Western New Jersey. Uh, so we grew up with really strong working values. I worked as far back as I could remember. That was always a part of what was expected from us, all of us, not just me and my family, but my friends and, and their families. Everybody worked really hard and took great pride in working. So my job, my careers became who I was. It, it helped define me as a person. And I never looked at it as a burden because I wasn't raised to look at work as a burden. I looked at it as something very valuable, something that you're giving back to the community and something that helps you develop as a human being. And I was always taught that, you know, you're, you're trying to be the most perfect Frank that you can be. You're trying to learn as much as you can about yourself. You're trying to learn as much as you can about other people. My parents drove that into me at a very young age. And that was, that was the way all, all of my friends thought. We were always trying to improve ourselves. And we did that through working hard. 
I want to go into just, I'm not going to ask you a bunch of cop stories, but I do want to ask you about one. Can you tell me what happened in 2007 when you arrested the, uh, the 53-year-old retired prison guard and maybe uh, share what that experience taught you? Yeah, that was, that was quite a mess. Um, I was actually, I actually was taken to internal affairs by another police officer because of that. So this is what happened. There was a string of car burglaries in our, in the neighborhood that I, I patrolled and there was a prison guard and a friend of his that saw the person breaking into a car. So they switched cars. They put a car out there that they didn't care if it was going to get broken into or not. And they waited and they, they lay in wait for this guy who was doing the car burglaries. And when the guy broke into the car, they beat him. And we counted the EMTs and I counted 84 bruises on this guy, 84 times with an ax handle. So I did arrest, and this is lost in the story. I did arrest the guy for breaking into the car, but I also arrested them for an assault uh, because I, I really feel strongly that when we start getting into vigilanteism, the system as a whole kind of breaks down. And I took a lot of heat from the outside for that. Not so much in, in the inside. The police department backed me on that. Um, a lot of that was lost in the story that the the PD actually did back me in, up on that. And I had a sergeant, a supervisor sign off on it. Um, it was my decision. I stand by that decision, but I did catch a lot of heat for that. What do you think it taught you? Do the right thing. Stand up for yourself. Don't worry about what the outside thinks of you. Because people were saying horrible things about me in the newspaper. And my wife was reading that. And I, I know she got quite upset about that. I stood by what I did. Ownership, taking ownership of your actions. I, I owned my actions. I stood up for myself. And I realized that you're never wrong if you're doing the right thing. I love that. You also talk a lot about how changing your physiology, your body posture, for example, when you were on police calls, to you know, assuming the physiology of somebody who is confident and in control. And how did taking those actions affect the outcome of uh, calls that you were sent to? I think that's the most interesting thing I learned as a police officer. I, I learned that you can convince yourself. I mean, obviously, when you take that Superman pose that cops always have, you're convincing everybody else that you're in charge. But I think more important, when you take that pose, you convince yourself you're in charge. I think your body posturing has a great effect on your thoughts. And, and you know that I'm a big thoughts become things guy. I think that you can influence your thoughts or coach your thoughts by the way you carry yourself. And I tell people that all the time who aren't necessarily accomplishing what they want. And I tell them, listen, your body posture just stinks. You got to stand up. You got to keep your shoulders back. You got to look confident or nobody's going to believe you're confident including you. So that, I mean, that was the biggest thing I learned as a cop, how to stand up in front of people, how to use my body posturing and poses to take control of not only a situation, but take control of myself. All right, let's flip gears. Let's talk about being a lawyer, a defense lawyer, particularly. Can you walk me through the different, I'm going to call it emotional experiences that goes on inside of you when you are arresting somebody for a DUI versus defending somebody for DUI? Like, what, like, how does that feel being on both ends? And what was that experience like for you, just using that as a sort of lens? It was fantastic, a fantastic experience. Police officers, judges, prosecutors rarely get to meet the person who has been arrested and is a criminal defendant up close. They rarely go to their home. They rarely meet their families. And there's a story behind everybody. 
And learning that story goes a long way towards helping a person, not just with the case that you're defending them in, but long-term help. Help. How can you help somebody in the long term? So you get somebody with a DUI, there may be a huge alcohol problem behind that. And forget about the DUI case. In a lot of cases, you can get a, you know you can take care of a DUI case rather simply. But it's what happens after that. What kind of supports in place for a person who has driven drunk? What kind of support system do they have with their family? If they need therapy, if they need medicine to help them, all of those all of those things come into play to help a person past the the criminal defense, so to speak. And you don't learn that as a cop and you don't learn that as a prosecutor or a judge because you rarely get to see somebody outside of, for me, outside of the offense in which I was arresting them for. But in a courthouse, the courthouse personnel rarely get to see them outside of that courthouse situation. So it was amazing for me to see that. But was there ever a time like when, I'm just trying to put myself in your shoes. I always do when I do these interviews. And this one is really hard really hard for me. So, you know, I got this visualization of being a lawyer and you pull somebody over and, you know, they're clearly intoxicated and you arrest them. But you know that every every move you're making as a police officer is ultimately going to be dissected for maybe something that you did wrong from the other side when they go into court to try and challenge it. So you've got the benefit of making sure as an attorney that you know where not to screw up. But at the same time, you're also a human being and you know that, you know, this guy who you're bringing in your car, there's that there's a certain road that you can counsel him on and say, okay, look, this is how it's going to go. You're going to go see a judge and then this thing is going to happen and that thing is going to happen. So was there just staying with this DUI? Cause I think it's, it's um, a good example for everybody that kind of, you know, visualize himself. And was there, was there ever a time for you where you found yourself sort of like playing cop and attorney at the same time where you were counseling and arresting? Well, I wouldn't say I was counseling them as an attorney. I think as a, as a police officer, I tried to be a human being as much as possible. And you've pulled somebody over for DUI. I mean, in their mind, this is a huge, huge setback for them. And people look at it as a very traumatic event that you should look at it as a very traumatic event. You've been pulled over for DUI. You're in the back of a police car. That should resonate. That should be a big deal for you. But I always wanted people to know, hey, listen, this isn't the end of the world. And you can work through this. You can get through this. And if that opening occurred, if the person gave me the opening to have that kind of dialogue, that kind of conversation, I certainly had it because I wanted people to know that, listen, you made a mistake. This doesn't have to be the end of your life. You can move forward from this, and this is what's going to happen. So don't feel overwhelmed. Because I think once you feel overwhelmed, you start making even more damaging decisions. And I saw that. I see that with a lot of my clients. They feel overwhelmed because of the case they have, and they feel like there's no hope, and they just start sliding. And you never want to see anybody slide like that, especially when it's not necessary. So you were able to separate that in your mind. You never, the attorney sort of like never took over and tried to help them. No, no, I never did that. Um, I took one oath as an attorney. It was the same oath I took as a police officer. That's to uphold the Constitution of the United States. That's all it was ever about for me. It wasn't, I didn't start my shift hoping to arrest people. I, my job was to uphold the Constitution of the United States and the state of Connecticut. That's the same thing, I, the same oath I took as, a, as an attorney. So to me, the jobs were very similar. We are all in, we're all part of this system. I think it's the best system in the world. And we're all important parts of this system. If one of us doesn't do our job correctly, the whole system falls apart. 
amazing at how you were able to separate that. We're going to talk about your psychology in a minute, but one last question on the law. Can you walk us through the story of defending someone who was accused of credit card fraud involving 50 Cent and, and maybe how that differed from a non-celebrity case? At the time, um, it wasn't that big of a deal. The stories came out after I had ep- actually represented that person. It was That was a, a relatively simple case. From a legal standpoint, that was a simple case. There was evidence that the state's attorney had. I advocated for my client. I think we've got a favorable disposition for my client. So on its face, in a vacuum, that was a very simple case. That's something I do probably 25 times a week. It wasn't until all of the, the, the media and newspaper articles came out that it became a big deal. So when it was actually happening, not, not so big of a deal. So at the time, it wasn't that big a deal. So it was just like any other case. It wasn't special because it was a celebrity. No, and, and the state's attorney and the judge never looked at it that way. Um, I don't think they ever factored into into the case who the victim was in that case, to their credit, because I know it's easy sometimes to, you know, when you have a face on a victim, it's easier to, you know, be more, take a more staunch approach. They never did. They handled it like they would handle any other case, and I handled it like I would handle any other case. All right. So in keeping with this theme that's sort of like, you know, mind-blowing for me, how you have these two different careers, there's also one area that I would have never, ever thought that you would be interested in. And that's sort of, I'm going to call it, you, you'll, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that you're going to have a different opinion, but, I, but we'll call it sort of like the woo-woo world of um, uh, quantum physics. And one of the books that um, gets most recommended on the show is a book that I know that you like called The Science of Getting Rich. And I finally picked it up and I started reading it. And ironically, I started reading it last week. And I feel a bit like I'm reading an old English book, but it's it's getting into my DNA for sure. Can you tell me how this book came into your life and explain how you found yourself using these principles? That's an interesting story. I came home from work the day I, I retired from being a police officer. And my wife was there like she always was, just you know, sitting in the living room. And she kind of looked up, but not a big deal. She said to me, so how was it? Like she hadn't been there for the, the 20-year roller coaster. And I said, you know what? So far, so perfect. And she laughed. And I said, you know, my life has been perfect. And I wonder why. I wonder what it is about my life that's made it so perfect. And she started doing research and gave me the book, The Science of Getting Rich by Wallace Waddles. And I read it and I realized that I had been doing a lot of the stuff that Waddles recommends that you do to create your perfect life. But I agree. It's like reading an old English book. And I spent that summer reading everything I could on it, on you know, from every author that I could. And I found that all of the books, although they were very enlightening, I had to get past that old English writing style. And it delayed my learning, I think, severely. So I decided after that summer that I was going to write a book. And as I was writing the book, I realized that although I use a lot of Waddle's principles, I use a lot more. And that's where the whole thought philosophy, thoughts becoming things came from. It came to me as I was writing the book, trying to organize all of my thoughts, all of the things that I had done over my lifetime to create what I thought was the perfect life. She, so your wife was not reading the book. She just sort of like was, was on a, a little bit of a mission to say, you know, how does this guy think everything is so perfect? Like where, where does the psychology come from? And then the book sort of like, 
we came across that research. Is that what it was? Yeah, we have we have great conversations, my wife and I. So we talk about it a lot. We were talking about it a lot. So she had done some some heavy duty research on visualization. She's a big visualization person. I get into that in the book. She is she's accomplished a lot and she credits that to visualization. So she did some research on visualization, came across the book and gave it to me and said, "Why don't you read it? See if this is if this hits home." And it did. It was right on the uh, right on the numbers. I couldn't believe it. it's like he was talking right to me. I agree with you. It definitely hit me. And there's one thing that has been driving me crazy in this book, and I've read it, I've listened to it, and I just can't gain the clarity that I want from it. So I'm going to read something to you, and I want to see if you can sort of explain back to me, in your words, what you think he's trying to say. Okay? Sure. There is a thinking stuff from which all things are made, and which, in its original state, permeates penetrates, and fills the interspaces of the universe. A thought in this substance produces the thing that is imagined by the thought. Man can form things in his thought upon formless substance and can cause the thing that he thinks about to be created. So on a superficial level, thoughts are things. But what is he really talking about when he's talking about its thinking stuff and its original state and interspersing in the universe. I can't, I just can't figure that out. Can you give me a little clarity there? Yeah. First of all, you're not alone. Um, when I do my, li- <laughs> you're not, I, when I do my life coaching, um, I stay away from that. And I, the point I drive home is who cares how it's happening as long as it is happening. Right. So I can convince people, listen, good thoughts, good things. Right. There's no question about that. The better your thoughts, the better your life's going to be. I can't I've never encountered anybody who has challenged me on that. So I I try to stay away from the metaphysics because I think I lose people. And I think Wallace Waddle says in his book, don't try to figure it out. Just take it as gospel. And he, he drives that point home because of exactly this question. But I think what he's saying is that the universe mystically makes things happen and you imprint your thoughts into the universe and then the universe goes through its process whatever that process is to make that thought become a reality and he further explains like some things take longer an oak tree takes longer to grow so if you put that thought into the universe it's going to take longer to grow because in addition to this law the law of attraction there are other physical laws gravity, electricity, things like that. But I think that's the point he's trying to get across is that the universe, this this mystical universe is responsible for giving you what your thoughts are. And I think what he's trying to say is that you have this stuff out there. And I always think of it as like Play-Doh, right? And you put Play-Doh on a cartoon and then you pull the Play-Doh off of the cartoon. What do you have? You have the cartoon. Or silly putty, maybe better. I think that's maybe what it is. But I think of that. So I, that's the way I think of the universe is your thoughts are the cartoon. You imprint them on the universe, and then they become reality. That's always the way I visualized it in my head. Okay, so let me, this, this is this is helping. Plato screwed me up because I, I had claymation in my head. Sorry. So you're talking about, so I have a four-year-old, so these things are very important to me. All right, okay. so... You got you got uh, you got silly putty, which um, for those of you that uh, you know maybe have not played with silly putty, you take silly putty, you put it on the, uh, the comics on Sunday if they still have that, 
and you peel it off and you look at it, and boom, the comic is on the silly buddy, right? right? All right, so you're saying that your interpretation is perhaps you view the universe as the silly putty, your thought as you just throwing the thought onto the silly putty, and then that thought, this is actually really helpful, that thought then is what perhaps he's talking about interspersing through the inter or dispersing through the inner spaces of the universe. Yeah, I think so. And I think that the throwing part where you throw your, your vision at the universe, I think that's the most complex part. I think that's the hardest thing for people to accomplish, but I, I, that's the way I visualize it. I visualize if, if I had to bring it into human terms, so to speak, silly putty and the comic section on Sunday. Um, and that's the way I visualize it in my head. Okay, so let's talk to let's talk about some practical applications. So, somebody says we'll use the one that everybody wants, right? I want to I want to have a big house that's overlooking the ocean. What advice would you give somebody that is trying to manifest? They're they're looking at their life and they're saying, you know, I've got two hundred dollars in my bank account. I'm dying, you know. I'm I'm living in an apartment, and you know, I'm barely able to pay pay for my apartment. But I'm visualizing this house that, you know, is clearly $20 million in Southern California that's, you know, looking over the ocean. And, but that's re- really where I'd love to be. And there's this massive disconnect between your current reality and the reality that you want. Using that as an example, can you give me some maybe strategies or, you know, advice on how somebody can use these techniques to help bring that into reality? Sure. I, I think the first thing I always have to deal with, with everybody that I life coach is I have to convince them that they're worthy of what they want, believe it or not. That is, we have been taught that greed is bad and that materialism is bad and wanting things is bad. And either that's through religion or that's through um, working for a corporation or even relationships. You shouldn't think of yourself first. So the first thing I have to deal with with people is to convince them that you're worthy of this. You deserve to have this. Because a lot of people in the back of their minds don't think they are worthy. And you're never going to get it if you don't think you deserve it. That's a huge component of this. Then I have to convince them that they're enough. They're enough to get this. You have what it takes. And we all do. We all have what it takes to get what we want. You have enough to get what you want. Once I get past those two huge hurdles, because those are huge hurdles to get past with people, then I, then I would tell people, don't worry about the how. Worry about the how many. And that, that's something my wife and I kid about all the time. She's an avid golfer, uh, but she's a 52-year-old mother of three. So she does not swing a golf club like you see on TV, right? These guys do amazing things. These girl do, girls do amazing things on TV. So she scores really well, but it never looks as good to her as she wants it to look. And I tell her, listen, don't worry about the how, worry about the how many. The only thing that matters is your score at the end. It doesn't matter how you got there. So I would tell people, don't worry about the how, worry about the how you're going to worry about what you're going to get, not how you're going to get there. Because you're right. You're, you're in an apartment and this mansion on the hills of, of Beverly Hills or, or California seems a million miles away, and you can't fathom in your mind how you're going to get there. Don't worry about that. That's going to come later. Just visualize what you want. Visualization is the key. You've got to completely immerse yourself in the visualization. And that means using all of your senses. Most people just think with one or two senses. You see, 
right? But do you smell? Do you smell what the new house is going to smell like? You know, if it's a beach house, do you smell the, the beach air coming in? Do you smell the new paint in your house? Do you feel the leather in the house? Do you taste? You're having dinner in your new d- dining room in your wonderful house. You've got to really visualize with all of your senses. So that's the way I would start. I would start with getting them to believe they're worthy, getting them to believe they're enough. Forget about how you're going to get there. Just know you're going to get there. No, don't believe you're going to get there. No, you're going to get there. And then start visualizing what it's going to feel like when you're there. And I think that's a really good start. Easier said than done. No question about it. But good practical advice. And I think it goes a long way towards getting you what you want. What does that look like for you in terms of uh, practice? Is it a you know a morning ten minutes at your desk, eye closed, earbuds in, listening to music while you visualize? Is it is it just in the back of your head throughout the day where you're dwelling on it the way uh, Waddles talks about? Or what, what what way do you recommend people doing that? You got to get it to your subconscious. That's the key. There's no question about that. Once you get it to your subconscious, your brain does all the work for you. Um, but getting there is a long road. There's no question about it. So you may have to, I'm a, I'm a big advocate of meditation. I meditate every morning. I meditate every night for a lot of different reasons, not just to accomplish my goals, just because it relaxes me at the end of a very hectic day sometimes. But I visualize during my meditation sessions, I visualize when I'm just sitting around, I'll just visualize during the day when I have a free moment. And I keep doing that until it becomes part of my subconscious. And then my subconscious does all the visualization for me. And my brain's working for me, even though when, even though I don't know it's working for me. So that's the key. I, I think you take as much time as you can, when you can, to visualize, but good visualization. Don't just mail it in. Don't just think, oh, house, I, I love it. Here's a picture of a house. Um, you need to have good, clear visualization. If you're not going to have good, clear visualization, you're wasting your time. So make sure you have time to get a good, clear visual of what you want. And that means using all five senses. And you just keep doing that until it becomes part of who you are. How do you get it into your subconscious, number one? I'm assuming repetition is the answer there. But when you, how do you know that you got it into your subconscious? Yeah, you'll know because you'll start seeing things. Um, once it's in your subconscious, you're going to see your life change tr- dramatically. Uh, and I see that with a lot of the people I work with as a life coach. They're shocked. They're shocked that, you know, Frank, I'm not even thinking about it anymore. It's happening. You know, you're thinking about it. You just don't know you're thinking about it. You're sending that visualization out to the universe, so to speak, that, you know, cartoon or comic to the the silly putty and it's making the, the imprint. And I don't talk to people like that. I talk to them in very practical terms, but I think that's really what's happening. But that's a long road. To get it to your subconscious is a, an extremely long road because people think incorrectly. There's no question about it. Um, and we're taught to think incorrectly. And until we can change the way we think with our conscious mind, we'll never get it to our subconscious mind. Well, I can tell you there's a little woo-woo going on here because this book has been recommended so many times. I never picked it up. A couple of weeks ago, I picked it up and I committed to listening to it in my uh, my earbuds. And, the, and a little trick for people if they you know like listening to books on uh, you know through Audible they read this book very, very slowly. So I speed it up to like 1.5 and it helps it somehow it doesn't sound as old Englishy to me um, when it goes a little faster. So I've been thinking about it, listening to it over and over again, just trying to gain some clarity. And then out of nowhere, you showed up to give me some, some real clarity on the book. So, you know, who's to say that this isn't part of, uh, you know, the manifestation process. Oh, right? I think it is. I think you manifested it. 
whether it was me or, or yeah. somebody else, somebody was going to come into your life because that's what you wanted. That's what you expected. And you probably had a very clear visualization of, of learning more about this. I did. And I do. There are different kinds of goals. There are the 90 day goals. Like I just want to, you know, have X, Y, Z happen over the next 90 days. And then there's the big giant ones. Like I want the $20 million house on the beach in Southern California, like we've been discussing. Which one do you recommend that people go through this level of visualization on? Because, you know, you have some things you want to do in the immediate and you have some big long-term ones. And sometimes I personally get tripped up with thinking like too far out, but not dealing with what's in front of me. And then I flip it and I deal with, you know, short-term goals, but I ignore the ones long-term. So how do you how do you balance those two things? Well, I think your idea of your perfect life, and that's what I talk to people about. Like, what's your perfect life? Because that encompasses everything. That encompasses you know, financial security, health with your family, professional satisfaction, you know, traveling, culture, things like that. That's got to be your long-term goal. And then I would tell people, tap into your emotion, not just your feelings. Don't become a prisoner of the moment. Tap into your emotions. Like, what, what, what are you really about? What do you really want out of life? Not just what do you want now? What do you want out of your life? And then I would tell them that all of those goals are important, the short-term goals and the long-term goals, because you know from reading Waddle's book, you know if you want to accomplish something, it's probably going to occur doing what you do on a daily basis, at least to start. That's going to open the door. And I think that's important that people should keep their short-term goals as a means to getting to their long-term goals, never forget about your long-term goals and look at the short-term goals as a way of getting to the long-term goals. I would never tell anybody though to have a 30-day goal. I would tell somebody to put a date on it, right? So if I want to be a millionaire, it's not going to be in 30 days because remember, 30 days never comes, right? Tomorrow, 30 days is 30 days from now. April 28th, I want to be a millionaire. April 28th, 2020, I want to be a millionaire. That's a definite goal. And that holds your feet to the fire. And that makes you keep working hard for something because you know it's going to come, right? You expect it to come. You intend for it to come. All of those things are important. You're visualizing that it's going to come. And you set a definite time that it's going to come. I think people get lost in the someday kind of stuff. Someday I'm going to have this. Someday I'm going to have that. Someday never comes, right? So you want to put a definite time stamp on when it's going to happen for you. And that's the way I would approach it with somebody. 30-day goal. So by May 28th, this is your goal. This is what's going to happen. By you know six-month goal, what's the date six months from now? That's the date. That's what this is going to happen. Long-term goal, the $20 million estate on the hills in California. Okay, put a date on it. And all of these little goals are going to lead you towards getting that big goal. Got it. So you make it a little bit more linear and you tie it down with a date so that your your brain starts to feel the impending, you know, the impending deadline. I love that. Okay, cool. How do you teach this? Do you have children? I do. I have three. They're all adults now, but yes, I have three children. How did you or do you uh, teach this to your children? Well, with my children, it was more from example. Um, and they'll tell me that, that they saw my wife and they saw me acting in this way. We're always unbelievably positive with our kids. We, you know, failure was never an option. We never let them believe that failure was an option and failure wasn't for them, frankly, because we just didn't talk about it. We didn't talk about failure. And that's, that goes back to the way, you know, I would tell somebody 
to think. You know, we don't want to use the word not ever. We want to use positive words. And we use a lot of positive words around the house. So my kids, that really rubbed off on my kids. I, I did, we didn't lecture our kids a whole lot on this stuff. I think they, because they were with us 24 seven, you know what that's like, right? Having kids are around you all the time. Yeah. Yeah. They see. I mean, they see everything you do. So you got to be careful around kids because for better or for worse, they're going to kind of catch on to what you're doing. All right. So I want to ask you about the Wyatt Earp effect. What is that? Uh, the Wyatt Earp effect is the way I use or the example I use to um, prove to everybody that this works. When I first became or was going to become a cop, my my wife and my parents bought me a book on real stories of the New Jersey State Police. I come from New Jersey. We know a lot of New Jersey troopers. So a lot of the stories resonated with me. But they were all stories about cops getting shot on the side of the road and, and in many cases dying. And I thought to myself, you know, this is not what I need to be reading before I become a police officer. These, these visions should not be in my head. So I went to a mystical place called the library and got a book. And I know a lot of people don't do that anymore, but I went to... I went to the library and got a book on Wyatt Earp and started reading everything I could about Wyatt Earp. And what I learned was Wyatt Earp was a lawman and he had a posse, mostly his friends and his family. And during the course of his law enforcement career, everybody from his posse was shot and killed at one time or another, except for Wyatt Earp. Wyatt Earp never was even grazed by a bullet, including the shootout at the OK Corral, which, you know, we see movies and it looks like this huge shootout. It was about 10 feet away. All accounts say that the shootout at the OK Corral was about 10 feet away. Um, so these people were 10 feet away from each other. Everybody's shooting. And the only person who didn't get hit by a bullet was Wyatt Earp. So I thought to myself, that's the message I want to send to myself. So every shift as a police officer, before I started, I told myself, I'm Wyatt Earp. So Every single shift I believed, I was Wyatt Earp and nothing bad was ever going to happen to me. Well, a, a lot of times I, I came out of shootouts unscathed, but this particular one, I really called upon the Wyatt Earp effect. I was investigating a domestic dispute in a, an apartment complex, and I was standing on the front porch, and behind me was a cyclone fence, just a regular wire fence, and it was about 10 feet away from me. So I was standing on the porch, and I heard somebody from the background yell to me, um, something about uh, very, something very disparaging about police officers. So I turned around, and as I turned around, there was a young man, I could see a silhouette, behind the fence, and he shot point blank at me five times. And I counted them, one, two, three, four, five. As I turned around, the only thing I could think, because it happened so fast, was there are windows behind him, there was an apartment building behind him with the lights on, I can't shoot back. I don't want to throw around into this house and hurt somebody who's innocent. And I'm Wyatt Earp. And I remember counting the bullets and not expecting to get hit by anything. And he looked at the gun because he was out of bullets and he ran and I chased him. Now we were on the other side of the fence. There was no way I was going to get to him, but I just wanted him to know I'm okay and I'm coming to get you. But when I walked back to the scene, everybody had come at that point because there were shots fired. And I started telling the crime scene investigation team what happened. And I said, I know I counted five shots. And they looked at me like I was crazy. Like, are you kidding me? Frank? There's no way. They found five bullet marks on that cyclone fence and they tracked down five rounds in the side of the house. I can't explain this any other way than I'm wider and I wasn't going to get shot by <laughs> so a bullet. And so what the hell happens? Well, the great thing about this story is uh, great thing about all my police stories is they're all documented. So you can go to the New Haven police department and get the, do you know, the documentation on this stuff. They did the, the investigation and they found that five bullets hit this cyclone fence and were diverted around me and hit the side of the house. 
I mean, I'm not a fence expert, but cyclone fence are mostly air, right? So I don't yeah. know how it caught this thing. And, and the crazy thing is it was about the same distance as the shootout at the OK Corral. I feel like, okay, my brain's gone in 80 different directions, but you know, how do you not, or maybe you do, think about those kind of things, like when you're going to sleep at night, just seeing this guy shooting at you, like how does that not affect your life in such a negative way? I feel like it would destroy my whole life. You know, if that happened to me, I'd be like, my life's over. This is horrible. But for you, it's just like you just it's almost like it quite literally bounces off you. Yeah. Staying grounded is important. I, I have a lot of friends, police officer friends who didn't do so well as, as police officers emotionally. Staying grounded is important. And I think that's important part of the thought philosophy, too, is you really need to find something, the inspiration that's inside of you and the emotion that's inside of you. And, you know, feelings come and go, right? You know, I was scared that day. Anybody who says they're not scared when somebody's shooting at them is a liar or crazy, one or the other, or maybe both. I was scared that day. That was a feeling. My emotion was that I was brave. You can't have two conflicting emotions at the same time, right? Two important, Mm -hmm. powerful emotions at the same time. So you could either be brave or you can be scared. The feeling was scared, but I was always brave on an emotional level, level. If you could only pick one, police officer or a lawyer, if you had to do it all over again, but you're only allowed one, which one would you choose and why? Police officer. I, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. And I learned the most about myself on so many yeah. different levels. That's what I thought you were going to say. All right. I want to, for the sake of time, I want to switch uh, gears and move into the fulfillment uh, part of the show. So, you know, this is really just talking about things in your life that have added more fulfillment. You know, we sort of believe that on this podcast, there's two parts to people's lives. Um, You know, just as a generically, there's the science of achievement and there's all the strategies that we've been talking about, about how to accomplish something, how to program the subconscious, et cetera. But then fulfillment in your life is a little bit of an art because, you know, for everybody, it's a little different. I want to start this part of the show off with asking you, are there any positions or opinions in the last few years, or it could be way back, it doesn't have to be in the last few years, that you've changed substantially where you've shifted your position or you've completely changed your mind about? Wow, probably just about everything. Um, if, you know, in the book, it, I, I, I'm very candid in the book about the fact that I wasn't a very nice person early on in my, my adulthood. Uh, I, had, I had achieved a great deal of success in two professions early on. I had financial security. I had three great kids. I had a great wife, nice house, everything that anybody would want. And I was really kind of a jerk about it. And over time, I realized that I was a jerk about it. I had lost my humanity. My wife says that I had lost my humanity. So that is the biggest thing I've changed over the last 10 years is I've gained my humanity. When you say you lost your humanity, do you mean like you were douchey? Yeah. What do you mean? That's exactly okay. it. No, it's a good word. I don't want to use that word. That's kind of the word I was thinking. Um, yeah, I was I was just not a good guy. Um, I was disparaging yeah. towards people. Thought I, I thought I deserved things. I had this sense of entitlement. And that's much different than you know feeling you're worthy, right? Entitlement and being worthy are two totally different things. Worthy is I need to work for. Entitlement is it should just come to me. And because I had accomplished so much, I just thought that everything should just keep coming to me. And that, frankly, I just thought I was better than people. And just a horrible way to go through life. And my wife was absolutely 100% correct. I had lost my humanity and, and 
that has been the biggest about face that I've, that I've made in my life. And it's, it, it has had the greatest benefits. How old are you now? I just turned 50 last year. Something I, I'm 52. There's something about 50. Like when I was 40, I got, you know, my 911 Porsche and th- those were my douchey years. And I think that something happens to a guy particularly who's achieved a certain level of success when they sort of hit their, you know, like mid, mid forties, early fifties, where they start, you know, reflecting back and realizing things. So it's interesting. And I know a lot of people listening to the show are you know, nodding their head right now. All right. So a couple of the questions I want to ask you that are, um, they're going to be, they're going to be out there. So just bear with me. If you could spend one month anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? One month. Oh, that's easy. My house in Kenny Bunk Beach, my Nirvana. Where's that? Kenny Bunk, Maine. Uh-huh. Um, we have a house on the beach. Oh, it's in Kenny Bunk, Maine. Maine, yes. So oh. we spend most of our time in Kenny Bunk, Maine. Um, it's my Nirvana. It's, it's my place where I find myself. Um, I run the beach every morning. We have a, a very active social lifestyle up there. Good quality people who think about things the same way I think. Insightful people, self-aware people, and I think that's what we were talking about. Like at forty, I wasn't so self-aware. At fifty, I am. Mm-hmm. So just a lot of good people, good times, very simple life, and I just love it. I just love being up there. Is Kenny Bunk the same as Kenny Bunkport, and is that related to where the president has a house? Or- yeah, we're right down the street from his house. Kenny Bunk and Kenny Bunkport are two different towns, but they're considered the Kenny Bunks. Um, so you can go from one to the other and never know you've, you've changed towns, but yeah, they're right next to each other. If you can go to one restaurant before you die, where would your last meal be? I like spark steakhouse in New York city. Mm, interesting. Okay. What's the one thing that's rocking your world right now that has nothing to do with life coaching, being an author, being an attorney, being a police officer, just something that's outside of, we'll call you quote unquote profession. Yeah. We're, um, my wife is looking for a home in Florida. We're looking my kids are out of the house. So we are selling our house in Connecticut and we're going to split our time between Maine and Florida. And we have not house shopped in a very long time. And I didn't realize how difficult it is to find a place that you're going to call home. Yeah. Yeah, it is. What's the one thing that you've always wanted to learn, but you just haven't gotten around to yet. Yeah. Uh, foreign languages. I'm, I'm really bad at foreign languages and I would really love to be able to speak Italian. Mm, I'm studying it right now. I'm, uh, I'm actually packing for four months in Italy. Good so, um, yeah, I'll keep you, uh, I'll keep you posted. Absolutely. Lots of people talk about their morning routine, but I'm sort of interested in your evening wind down routine. What's that look like? I know you mentioned meditation in the evening and, uh, do you do transcendental meditation or is it just visualization or do you use an app or what's it look like if we got a, little, a bit more granular? It's a, it's a lot of visualization. I don't use an app, but I use music. Um, one of our yoga instructors in Maine gave me a really awesome uh, mixtape for meditation. So I just put that in for about a half an hour before I, I go to bed. Um, I stretch. I do a lot of stretching exercises. I'm, I, I'm a workout freak. So I know how important, especially at my age, it is to keep you know stretched and limber. So I stretch before I go to bed. I meditate. Um, I have a cup of tea. I, I like tea at night. Nothing crazy. I mean, my day goes, I run pretty hot. So I'm working till eight, nine o'clock some nights. Uh, so when 10 o'clock comes, I completely shut down. So I turn the phone off. I make sure the computer's down. I put the music on. I meditate. I'll have a cup of tea. I stretch and then I go to bed. 
Like it. Let's move into the last part of the show, which is the rapid fire ran- round. Answer as quickly or slowly as you like. It's basically a first thing that comes to mind. Round. Okay. What would your friend say is one of your superpowers? Courage. What's one of the things you're afraid of right now? Oh, my family moving away. What keeps you up at night? My family moving away. <laughs> what do people never ask you, but you wish they did? About my childhood. What's the one thing you want to get better at outside of foreign languages? Public speaking. What book have you reread the most? Oh, Science of Getting Rich. What's your guilty pleasure? Working out. What's what? <laughs> Netflix and popcorn. <laughs> That's funny. What's one thing that you own and probably should throw out, but you never will? Oh, I have an overcoat from high school that I should, it's probably getting to the point I should throw it out, but I never will. Uh, two more questions. Uh, if you had to give a TED talk on nothing that you're known for and nothing that you speak about, so we're throwing out attorney, cop, author, and all the stuff that we talked about, and it can be on anything that you want or anything you have a passion for, what would the subject be? Sports. All right. Last question. Let's change it up a little bit. What one question do you want to ask me? How did you start the podcast? Um, I just made a decision. I was a chiropractor for 25 years, and I one more person said their neck or back hurt. I was going to shoot myself in the head. I couldn't take it anymore. I wanted to do something different, and I realized that there's a lot of uh, professionals that are looking to do great things with their life. They want to travel. They want to have experiences. They want to do fun stuff, and they're not doing it because they're you know they're spending most of their days just working, 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 and they're unfulfilled. So I decided to start talking, you know, the Trojan horse, let's talk about business. Let's talk about the science of achievement and ways that you can make money in real estate and, you know, ways that you can learn how to program your subconscious mind and all the things that we're interested in. But let's also split the show in half and let's talk about some real stuff around, you know, about the time when you were kind of douchey and and how you got out of that. and, And what would you, where would you like to eat? And, you know, all the questions I just asked you, let's talk about fulfillment. That was about a year ago, let's see, maybe a year and a half ago, and it uh, led to me leaving my uh, 25-year career in chiropractic and actually putting my money where my mouth is and fulfilling the things that I've been talking about, which is living in Europe and learning Italian and moving to Italy, which we're about to do, and um, moving to Southern California, which is something I've always wanted to do, and um, we're we're moving to... uh, Manhattan Beach uh, on October 15th. And once I made the decision that I was going to do these things, you know, as most of the stuff we just talked about, it just started to happen. So that's, that's kind of just how it all came together. Crazy, right? Fantastic. Sounds great. Yeah. Great story. Well, listen, I, um, how do you pronounce your last name, by the way? Canace. I didn't know if it was Italian. It was like Canace. It it is Canace, but it's changed over the years to Canace. Ah, okay. Got it. Got it. So, we'll, so it's Frank Kinnace. Okay. I just want to make sure I said it right. Well, Frank, um, this was so freaking good, so interesting, so actionable that I absolutely loved it. So thank you for taking the time to do this. And uh, we're going to link up to your book um, and all of your stuff in the show notes. Uh, do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? Just thank you for listening and thank you for having me. You got it, brother. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game 
or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.